The interaction and indeed cooperation between a cropping and a livestock system is something we've spoken a lot about on this podcast. Back in episode 136, we discussed the Australian Merino Lamb Trial and its financial challenge. Could a Merino weather trading operation pay for the establishment of the crops grazed by the animals? Well, we now examine the results. Welcome to The Yarn, the number one wool industry podcast. I'm Marius Cumming. So the variation in weight gain and wool production within and between the teams of weathers entered in the trial was really significant. Over the seven months of the trial, meat values increased between about $30 and $95. The fleece value gains between about $50 and $75. But the average across all animals was $64 and $60 respectively, meaning an average per head gain of $124. But some individuals almost reached $200. And the relationship between fibre diameter and weight gain is probably not what you think. So the weather lambs grazed various mixed species crops, which has also thrown up some really interesting observations that we're about to hear from. But look, instead of me trying to explain it, let's hear from the experts. So did the sheep pay for the crops? Consultants Craig Wilson and Jim Meckiff dive into it. Yeah, the, the growth rates um, averages, so I guess, yeah, growth rate and fleece values calculated off that period on the, on grazing crops. And the stocking rates that those grazing crops could maintain certainly indicates there's a good profit margin uh, after the cost of establishment of the, the crops or the pastures to um, to warrant having livestock, even even merino weathers, making a significant margin off those paddocks. And the genetic variation within it is quite significant too. Craig, uh, you, you're one that loves, you really do love genetics. Um, what did you learn from this trial in terms yeah. of genetics? Yeah, so there's a level of diversity there amongst the entrants in their breeding programs at home. So they, they do different things at home. Um, some are driven more to a wool production system. Some are driven more to a sort of balance of meat and wool. Um, and we've got a number of different bloodlines represented as well. But I think fair to say that... Uh, the results as an average were really encouraging even by those guys that have been sort of focused on wool. Some of the stuff that we've seen has really broken a few paradigms about what people may think. Um, what we found is there was actually no relationship at all between the average measured fibre diameter of the wool coming off the weathers and the growth rate of the of the weathers. Um, that then highlights to me, you know, that you can absolutely have sheep with high fleece value and with really good growth rate. I don't see those things being mutually um, exclusive. I think you can do it do it all at once, really. Yeah, that is very surprising and, as you say, breaks some myths. But how is that possible? Because, I mean, surely the sheep has a limited amount of energy that it can actually uptake. So how is it that you, know, you had some of the finer wool producers also producing the, the most amount of weight gain? I mean, uh, is it just a matter of... Uh, genetic efficiency. I think it is, and actually, the, the the thing about it is when you measure everything, which is which is you're measuring clean fleece weights, you're measuring average fibre diameter, you're looking at style, you're looking at a whole range of things, which actually gives you total total fleece value, not just not just clean fleece weight. So um, that's I think where the 
somewhat happens in the industry. People think that a heavy wool cutting sheep's not going to grow. That may be true in some instances, but we're talking about total fleece value, not just clean fleece weight. And that's the critical issue to me. So, you know, it, it goes to all the stuff that we've done in the past and we see these sheep that have had really good fleece values, not just not just clean fleece weight. So, Jim, in terms of the species, uh, the crops that were grazed, so you had a number of crops that were established through this, uh, multi-species crops. Tell us a little bit about uh, the crops that were grazed as part of the trial and the findings there. Yeah, the, the Weathers grazed three particularly different um, multi-species cover crops or multi-species grazing crops. Um, initially, they grazed the ridge paddock, which consisted of 11 species of just about everything from cereals, brassicas, and uh, a bit of a shotgun mix of some uh, legumes, vetch, shaftal clover, bursine clover, a really big mix. Um, just on that particular mix how it jumped out of the ground early with cereals and, and the brassicas dominating. And I thought, well, this is a joke. The, the clovers haven't even, you know, turned up here. Um, and how that shifted and changed all the way around to being totally clover dominant in the spring. Quite remarkable. Um, the pipe paddock, which was a, a 40 hectare, split into some mul- um, multiple laneways to allow some grazing pressure, consisted of the cereal rye, Village radish, um, grazing canola, um, and veg. So that you know that was a bit of a multi-species as well. How they grazed that tillage radish was quite um, unusual. They really didn't go after it initially, and then they preferred to sort of nip off the leaves, leave them on the ground, and go after the bulb. Um, the cereal rye jumps out of the ground very quickly and gets going for some early dry matter production, but in terms of either palatability or, or likability, this sheep will prefer to eat and select a lot of other species before they go after that. Um, the grazing wheat crop, uh, kitty hawk variety, which also had a, a very you know a kilo of tillage radish, 75 kilos of wheat and, and 10 kilos of vetch sprinkled into it, um, it probably appeared to be the most uniform and, and was grazed the most uniform and tested up to be, I guess, you know, quite high in energy and, and high in protein and and should have produced the highest growth rates. However, you know, previous work done in this region by our CSIRO through our grain and graze projects indicates, you know, you've got to have that calcium, magnesium, sodium uh, imbalance rectified to um, to increase that growth rate. And, and these sheep were not supplemented. You know, we couldn't guarantee that they would all have access to that supplement. So, you know, we did see a drop-off in production whilst they were grazing that uh, grazing grazing wheat crop. But, yeah, quite a quite a variety. Coming back into the spring, your sheep ended back to the, uh, the clover-dominant pasture there now. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't find the cereal. You couldn't find the, the brassica. It was totally dominant with the, the legumes. Um, Livestock production—you couldn't have asked for better ice cream and, and strawberries. It was—it was the best. <laughs> ice cream and strawberries is a very, very good analogy. So, look, it sounds like um, Jim, there's been quite a lot to learn there, and some really interesting observations about how sheep have grazed different species throughout the year. And it was a standout year in terms of production. But 
essentially, the, the question that we posed or you guys posed early on as part of this was can a uh, six to seven month uh, grazing uh, of, of crops by merino lambs, but become merino weathers, I should say, um, can it actually, can the sheep pay for the crop? And uh, given the, the rough figures, I know you haven't completely um, finished the analysis. What was your observation there? Did it did it do that? Well, yeah, using the, the gross income and the, I guess, the gross input costs, um, yeah, some due diligence on, it, on this would be uh, wise. But listen, I guess the, the gross, over $1,400 a hectare income. Um, crop establishment costs could be around $400 a hectare. We might have to double that area established to, to take that grazing um, stocking rate through the, the winter period. So if we're looking at $800 then we've got $1,400 gross, you know, there's still $600 margin, uh, less costs available. And it doesn't cost you uh, that much to run a, run a sheep, you know, a bit of shearing and vaccinations and ventures and away you go. So, yes, definitely it pays, whether that be with um, breeding stock or growing stock or um, even beef cattle. You know, the, the whole complementary fit of, of these winter grazing crops and, and cover crops into mixed farming operations to take the pressure off perennial pastures, loosen clover, annual pastures to create a feed wedge in, in the spring is a very good um very good fit. And uh, I think as you were saying, it, it, these crops also extend the growing season both at the start and uh, and at the end. I think what we've seen, particularly with grazing canolas, with um, being able to take those plants out of the frost, uh, that frosted time, um, certainly anecdotally speaking to different people, they the capacity to take it out of there, which has significantly increased the, the yields um, of those resultant canola crops, um, but I, th- I think it's it's kind of it's really interesting as observers of this to watch what the sheep have preferred over that period of time, and I think there's some really good lessons in that too. Just in giving the sheep some diversity there to pick in some ways what they like. Uh, you know, we did have a good run, but some of the individual numbers that have come out of this trial are just absolutely extraordinary. There's you know individual sheep that have put on 44 kilos. Of, uh, of weight gain over that time, which is, adds up to $126 worth of meat. At the same time, they cut, you know, around that $70 worth of wool with seven months. Um, so you're talking, you know, in the in excess of $190 in seven months. So it just really shows what variation there is between the teams but also within the teams. Remembering that these sheep weren't selected for any of these trades, they were just—they're not the best of their sheep, and they're not the worst of their sheep. So, extend that out to a breeding program where people are breeding rams, and if you can identify these rams and these genes that'll do these things, um, it opens up a, a huge opportunity for, you know, for the industry into the future to have really high fleece value sheep that grow um, yeah, somewhat the best of both worlds. So the genetics is certainly, there's a lot of different ways to look at this trial and uh, I suppose the thing that really uh, hit the nail on the head to some degree was something that came out of the blue and that was the hailstorm at the end, if you want to explain what happened there and what the learning was from that. Yeah, yeah listen, there was, um, I guess, a silver lining in having these livestock grazing, these um, 
certainly the, the grazing cereals or grazing canals in the district because there was a hard storm event. And I guess if you have all your eggs in one basket, um, you're hanging out for that grain harvest. But the, these paddocks had already paid for their way and, and returned some income before harvest had even approached. So, yeah, it is, it is nice to have that money in the bank before, I guess, before you get the header out and worry about the mineral or the header because... Um, yeah, when climatic risks such as the, the hail or the drought or the frost at the end of the season can really um, impact the, the profitability of the farm. So having having this risk spread through livestock enterprises integrated with the cropping enterprises is um, a great result. So it must have been quite devastating to have that hail damage, but I suppose in a way it proved the value of the trial and the value of uh, trying to set up a system that reduces the risks. Well, absolutely. Very devastating if you don't have hail insurance or insurance. But, um, you know, you were saying earlier, Craig, that the livestock enterprise is, is the risk insurance, isn't it? Yeah, certainly should be seen that way, I think. And then, you know, if you look, we've spoken before about just trying to get sort of sheep back into cropping, get the mixed farming areas back to being mixed farming. And that's kind of really... A big aim of this trial is to show those cropping guys, well, there is another way. Um, there is other alternatives there. So, you know, it's a, it's a good fit. I've always felt like that and we've proven it. Marius, really, the profitability it will exceed over the longer period of time, um, I guess, a, a straight cropping business could achieve. Marius, also to add in the, the other benefits that we can't really measure or haven't observed for long enough, you know, to, the additional benefits you saw structure through the, the multi-species crops, the, the benefits of wheat control through grazing um, or, or having different break crops in place, the frost management. Being able to eat the biomass and turn it into to meat and wool was pretty uh, convenient in a big season last year because there was a lot of um, a lot of crops that probably grew too much biomass to to actually turn it into to grain. So, yeah, a lot of different management options available to you. Well, congratulations to everyone involved with the trial and I, I know that you guys are very much uh, a driving force as was uh, Sally Martin and uh, Greg who couldn't be with us today. Um, but is the message going to get through? I mean, uh, that's the, the next point. Uh, have you had plenty of interest from those 100% croppers that you're trying to influence? Oh, so I'd say definitely the the interest of um, livestock in the in the Farming systems is, is definitely happening, yeah. Yeah, and I'll always go back to the to the thing about understanding what your product is. So I see it so much, I've done it for so long, and it's, so, it's almost impossible for people to gauge the quality of their genetics on their own farms. So until you come into something like this, which actually provides that level playing field, you know, everyone plays on the MCG and they've all got the capacity to get a kick. Um, let's see how many kicks they can get. You know, and that's the glaringly, glaringly obvious thing to me is that the, the lack of quality information based around benchmarking genetics in the industry is a is a major impediment to the to um, the growth of the merino industry into the future. So, you know, I think I think there can't be anything clearer than what we've done in terms of net profitability and the impact that that has on you know people's real businesses. So, it's just so damn important. That, uh, that people get in and get involved and learn this, learn how their genes perform.
again, congratulations on this uh, trial. It seems like it's had some fascinating results that uh, you could look at from many different uh, prisms, many different ways. But uh, you did mention that you wanted to take this to um, other environments, particularly a pastoral environment. So what, what are the next steps? So currently we've got entries open for uh, the Australian Marina Production Trial, which is going to be run at uh, in two different environments, one at Cadoblin and one at Wagga. So the concept is to split the sheep in half. Every team will be given the option to put their sheep either at either location or at both. And then what this will do is actually allow us to really measure those um, effects of environment and management on genetics and answer a few questions around, well, does it pay for us to reduce fibrodometer in sheep in that Western country or do we concentrate on something else? So it's going to be fascinating to see how the sheep rank in the two different locations. We're kind of really keen to get as many people involved and a lot of diversity in that trial to, uh, I guess, to find those things out, Marius. But And the other one really, I think, with running these longer-term trials, which this next one will be, is to understand mature weight and mature production and profitability of sheep. So there's no doubt at all there's a trend in the industry to get, you know, sheep are certainly getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and at some point that's got to, that's got to level out. So you really need to understand the mature weight of your, of your, of your flock, the genetic weight of your flock, to then work out how many DCs you can run on your farm, and, then, and everything really stems from that. So... That's the aim of the next trial. It starts in April. We've still got time for people to enter. Um, and we're really keen to get people involved to help them out, understand you know, how their genetics perform. Jim and Craig, congratulations once again for this fascinating trial. It's really given us a window into the future of what is possible uh, from a, a species point of view, from grazing, from a genetics point of view, from uh, the opportunities, from the economics of it all. We look forward to seeing the next exciting episode. Thank you very much. Yep, thanks, guys. Consultants Craig Wilson and Jim Meckiff there of the Australian Merino Lamb Trial and apologies to Jeff Casburn of the New South Wales DPI who couldn't join us for that interview. But please look up the results, get in touch with Craig Wilson if you'd like to be involved in the next edition of this really innovative work. But the number of people involved with this particular trial was very significant and it was made possible by the good work of Sally Martin of Sally Martin Consulting, Rachel Gorn, Samantha Moorfield, Marty Moses of Moses and Son, Will Sullivan, Craig Wilson Associates, Trent Fordham of Riverina Wool Testers and Fletcher International Exports. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. From me, Marius Cumming, thanks for having a yarn with us.